The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Fold is brought to you by O Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa. No mai hoki mai ki the folds e mihi nei kōdanken grieve tokunga. My guest today is Claire Maybe, who is the books editor at the spin-off, the third person to hold that position and I've been wanting to talk to her forever um she she's just a she's a brilliant writer I mean everyone who's done that job surprise surprise has been a, a, an extraordinary writer and and the the writing crackles with a passion for the subject you know the the most recent thing uh, she wrote that we published was her obituary or, or tribute to the the writer Renee um which I don't know you, it's just so so vivid and knowledgeable and passionate and and it's just you know if you haven't read it please go and read it but and I mean that's basically the the fact that she wrote that I don't know within hours of her passing it kind of all of that knowledge is in her all of the the feeling is is in her and that's um why she's so good at her job and this is on some level if not a side hustle, it's it's a part-time job for sure because um, her main thing has been working on creating uh, festivals, live events that, that, that grow out of the culture of books and writing in New Zealand. Um, so she, uh, she, we talk about some of this on the, the podcast, but she founded uh, Pirate and Queen, which is an events uh, company with her partner Andrew Laking uh, around 10 years ago and out of that came lit crawl and verb festivals and she also has worked on the New Zealand Festival of the Arts and the Auckland Arts Festival and a whole bunch of things that kind of bring together the the slow and private work of writing and uh, put them into public spaces and as she talks about like the way that those events are is quite different from the way that the the sort of establishment um, events are typically structured and that's because she kind of considers herself fundamentally a bit of a troublemaker and I think that's quite a cool way of conceiving of why a clear maybe joint feels different from the way it might be done in other people's hands. Um, so the, the reason I wanted to have this conversation is because I've been thinking a lot lately about books and why they seem so healthy where other cultural forms, you know, music, TV, sort of pop culture type stuff just isn't thriving in quite the same way. And I've got my own theories on that, which I won't bore you with, but I really wanted to get someone who was a lot closer to the action to kind of describe what the last 10 years have looked like and why this um, this particular form, this culture, in an era when you might expect it to be failing, you know, like uh, there are a whole host of reasons why different cultures are kind of um, being outcompeted and attention spans are supposed to have gone to hell. 
somehow bucks are still still out here thriving and evolving and fighting and that's the meat of what this conversation is about. I really like massively enjoyed it. Even if you don't think you're interested in books, even if you think maybe that's a bit outside of the media lane again, it's not, it's all, it's all relevant. I think we can all learn a lot from, from how, you know, the, the publishing and book and write books and writing worlds have, have uh, responded to this era and, and Claire's very particular, super up close um, view on that. So yeah, really enjoyed this. This is Claire, maybe books editor of the spinoff and so much more on the fold. Denakwe, Claire. Welcome to the fold. Thank you, Duncan. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited about this. I first sort of messaged you about it like five months ago and it's, it's great to be, <laughs> be finally finally in the same room and able to do it. Um, and I'm excited to do it because I, you know, my main way of understanding what's happening in the world of books is through reading your coverage on the spin-off. And based on that, uh you know, it feels like it's thriving in a way that a lot of other cultural forms are kind of maybe not at the moment. And I'd really like to sort of figure out whether that's true and uh, and and why. But I wonder if we could start by talking a bit about you and how you came to be be so bookish. <laughs> I am really bookish. I think um, I was lucky to grow up in a house where reading was a, a thing. So my parents always read to us. We always had heaps of books. And both mum and dad read to us. And I think I just absorbed that as a habit really young. And then I was definitely one of those kids at around kind of 10, 11, 12 who just hoovered books. I just read and read and read. And I think there's a definite pattern that happens when you, if you're at that age and you read a lot, those books kind of imprint on you. And I think... Almost everybody know I know who's a very bookish adult had the same experience of kind of those books. I don't know, they just do something to you at that age. Like they, they just give you whole worlds and characters and people that you, in a way, morph into your own personality. So for me, Anne of Green Gables was epic. Like I just loved her so much and I read all of her books over and over and over again. And, and to me... She, it sounds so weird and a, and a little bit creepy, but she's very real to me. And I think um, that, I don't know, it just, it just shapes the way that you think about being an adult and work and life. Or for me, I'm definitely someone that has to work in a field I'm passionate about. Otherwise, I find it hard to be motivated. So I think um, books for me has always just been a kind of very central part of my life, even though there was a big patch in my early 20s where I did not read, I have to confess. That's interesting. Yeah, I know. It just Bleak stopped. Time. Yeah, I think I was just having a lot of fun as a student and even though I studied English, so I suppose I did read a lot for school, but I didn't read for pleasure. And I think I came back to that in my late 20s when I was kind of, I realised I had been missing it. That's interesting, right, because, you know, if you were to look at your career from where you stand now, it, it, it sort of seems like you'd always been leading to, to the kind of the career that you've ultimately built. You know, how did you sort of start to conceive of books as not just this kind of private pleasure, albeit one that you strayed from briefly, but uh, as a place where you could you could build a career in? That's such a good question because actually when I think about it, I remember when I went to uni and I'd come, you know, I was a kid of the 90s 
went through that whole careers counsellor phase at high school where if you're good at English, you, you do law. That's kind of the option. So I went to Otago to do law and kind of liked it but just knew that I was never going to be a lawyer. I just knew I just did not have that passion in me. And But what I loved in the classes that I went to were, were the English classes. But even then, I just did not know that there could be a career in books. I could really, I remember freaking out about it and thinking, I have no idea what I'm doing with my life. And I felt like that for years. Like I just didn't know what my career would be. And in a funny way, I still feel like that. Like I feel like my jobs have been a series of flukes. And I think um, <laughs> I think honestly, I went I finished uni, wanted to keep studying, but was so um confused about what I would do. Like I I kind of wanted to do a master's degree because I wanted to keep studying English and be in that uni bubble but was never able to decide on a topic. So I did the Fitterer publishing course and thought, yes, this is it, I'll be a publisher. But I, I feel like I shouldn't say this, but I didn't love the course. I just found it, um, I think I was too young and too stuck in my university ways, my party ways. <laughs> and for me, the course was like this quite abrupt introduction into work and it wasn't the kind of hustling around a publishing office with copies and and books piled up against the floor. You know, like it just, I had romanticised things so much that I was again freaking out. And my first job that I got was as an editor at the Parliamentary Council office and I just died. <laughs> a little part of me died. Because it was this editing job and I was like, cool, I'm, I'm starting a career in publishing but I was so bored and it was just not me. Like I'd always been an artsy person and this office was like suit and ties and, and nine to five editing legislation, which which had its interesting moments, but I was like, this cannot be work. Like this can't be work. That, that is quite a hard <laughs> move from the sort of Otago scene to, yeah. to, uh, to editing ledge. And kind of hilarious looking back because I was definitely panicking. I think. And um, anyway, I what had happened was during the Fisher Road publishing course, the great thing about that is that you get these cool posts. So I'd done a two-week um, posting up at Penguin and had met a publicist there who was awesome, an awesome person. And I just remember emailing her going, any ideas <laughs> for <laughs> jobs? And she was like, oh, yeah, the Auckland Arts Festival is hiring for the next festival. And um, I had had a little bit of experience at festivals, so I emailed them and was so lucky to get a job in their marketing team. So moved to Auckland on a horrendous salary, I remember, like so bad. I think it was like 30 grand or something, And um, but I was delighted. And that was kind of the start of my festival passion. I just loved it. It was so hard. It was such a hard job, but it was... It was manic and fast and I felt like I was in the world that I wanted to be in. So it was kind of arts festivals that that pulled me into book festivals first. Right. Yeah. And because, but even then it's quite a leap from 
I'm interested in working in this place and enjoying it to to what you've done with Pirate and Queen, which is you're sort of building these things from scratch. And in some cases, what 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 made you take that leap? Because that's a that's a big one. Yeah, I I guess at the time it didn't feel like a big leap, and I think that is definitely one of the reasons that I I feel like I'm missing a risk chromosome or something like I, I genuinely do wonder about that because starting off on our own felt really natural at the time and I think I had just enough experience and just too little experience I was very naive and I think um I just had heaps of energy for making something and I could see at the time that there was stuff to be made like I saw that there was a gap for showcasing the kind of real indie grassroots literary world that I could see and the my partner Andy who who we started this together he's he'd been an artist forever like he'd never had a stable job so he was very comfortable as well just making something and it didn't actually matter if it failed and I think that was a key thing like we we didn't really think about success or failure at all we just thought about making the thing and so that's yeah that's how it started we just saw there was a gap we had the energy and enough experience to pull it off but not enough to freak us out yeah that's really interesting that that idea because it's a you know if you think about where a lot of the sort of like I grew up in the music scene and people were forever putting on like a sort of like a punk or an indie festival from the incredibly lo-fi like in a community hall to things that are a bit more elaborate but there was very much a culture of there's no no one's going to fund this you just have to make it and you know figure the rest out later and that ethos seems to be a little bit in literal versus the very kind of you know, controlled and 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 understood world of the kind of established festivals. Like it, it feels like it's more akin to that that spirit. What, what was it that you were trying to do? You know, do you want to talk about Lit Crawl in particular? I think that's yeah, Lit Crawl. I was looking for. I quite like breaking the rules, and I always have been. I was quite. Uh, um, I'm the oldest of three kids. We grew up in like suburban Tauranga, and we were my thrills when I was little was running around like in people's backyards stealing their fruit off their trees as you can do in Tauranga and it was that there's something about that spirit of like breaking a boundary that I've always liked and that I've liked about the arts and I think Lit Crawl came together pretty easily because Wellington was so suited to it because we have this geographic bubble and this incredible culture of independent business so and that is to me what Wellington is made out of is these retail and hospo communities that have started their own thing and just kept bashing through the barriers that Wellington can pop up and I saw the same thing in the literary community like there were all these cool journals and um, writers who just kept on making something without money you know money wasn't even a question and um, so lit crawl to me, presented this opportunity of bringing people together in that spirit of independent business, like literally inside those businesses, and just completely doing, going against what the major festivals were doing, which was 
that much more formal experience of going into a theatre, having a ticket, sitting down, you know, like you know what to expect in those spaces and they're they're definitely there for a reason and good reasons. But I think Lit Crawl just gives you this kind of energy that is fun and that is a little bit naughty. Like there is a sense of like, oh, I'm here after hours. There's a poetry reading in a record shop. This is kind of weird, but it's so, it's like I just like that sense of um, the community taking back the physical city. Mm. Something about that. How did, because these things can and really should be read as on some level a critique of whatever the big establishment thing is. How did did those kind of worlds respond to it? Because A, you started there and B, you know, you would ultimately end up working um, in aspects of them again. What what was the sort of response to doing something that was a bit more punkish? Well, it's, it's actually really lovely because I was working for the New Zealand Festival of the Arts at the time we started Lit Crawl. And Sue Patterson, who was the executive director of at that time, dearly departed Sue, she was so supportive. And she let me and Andy like take over a whole corner of the office. Meg Williams, who was the marketing director at the time, was just like, I'll sponsor your paper for the print programs. Like they were really into it. That's gorgeous. It was gorgeous. And um and I and I have this photo of the very first lit crawl with Sue Patterson. Anna Cameron, who was my boss at the time, she was the producer, um, because I was working on the writers' program for the main festival, and Meg sitting on the floor at Ferret Bookshop with the little faces looking up at the writer like kids. And it's um, that was the vibe. Like, it was all in. Yeah. So just sort of zooming out a little bit, I mean, this is kind of ten, roughly 10 years or so ago now, which is about five years after I remember reading a bunch of stories about how books were done. And, you know, because I was sitting in, you know, music publishing or, uh, you know, or music media rather, uh, watching our thing sort of cave in on itself and paying attention to all these kind of related creative fields. And there was a uh, thought that some combination of the internet and Amazon was going was sort of just creating a tomb around books as we know it, and that doesn't seem to have happened. Um, the, the publishing world feels quite vital uh, in in a lot of ways, at least from you know the position outside of it that I look at. Is that is that uh, accurate? Do you think? I think it is, and. I never believed that books were going to die. I just knew, maybe wanted to think that. But I just think the the community of people that need books in their lives as physical objects but also as um, ways of learning and escape, all those things that books do, is too big and too um, demanding. And I also think the physical bookshop is such a key community space like there's something about bookshops that is very important and in a in a hard to explain way but I also think we have to be careful about that because I do think while the industry to me from my end of it 
at this stage does seem incredibly healthy. I can see that the cost of living crisis is hitting sales. I do think that is happening. And I do think that if we're not careful, and by that I mean continuing to support independent publishing, independent bookshops, book buying as a cultural thing, I do think that there could be problems in the future. It's interesting, right, because that, that, that culture of independent bookshops is actually probably the key differentiator between the music world that I came from where both of them had these big chain mega stores which performed a function, um, you know, I'm thinking about like Borders and Barnes and & Noble versus like a Tower Records or, or um, you know, sounds in the local context. And they all, those big chain things got unwieldy, collapsed mm. and most of them are gone. Some of them have reemerged in different forms. But the independent bookshop, much like the independent record shop, had that particular role. And the indie record shops are mostly gone, but the uh, the bookshops are, you know, can feel more vibrant than ever. And it does feel like there was almost like a concerted effort to say, don't let these things fall. You do not know what you'll you'll lose. And and that, you know, you can see that in the way that yeah. shops like Unity, which have supported us and, and Time Out and, you know, there's, there's much more that and are I still going. I think COVID really elicited that panic in people. I think people really realised that those places were important to them on the other side of it. And so there was a lot of book buying going on, you know, the um, online book buying. But, you know... Vic Books closed this year. Like, it is happening. There, There is a danger, I think. I don't think that books are impervious to the fluctuations of the economy. So that does make me nervous, but publishing seems incredibly vital. And there is now I can see some fierce competition going on between publishers in New Zealand. There's so many books coming out. Like, this year was extraordinary. I was inundated mm. with amazing books and I could see there's this real urgency and I also think among people of writing hard and seriously I think there's this incredibly healthy culture of writing in New Zealand. Yeah and like that's that's actually probably the thing that feels most vital is is mm. the object itself you know setting aside the um you know, the, the sustaining audience and economic elements of it, that somehow over the past 10 years, the, the sort of diversity and intent and cultural being into New Zealand literature uh, and, and all, you know, in quite a broad ranging way, it just, it feels really like it's almost never been so healthy. You know, if that's true, what do you think is, is driving the, the sort of supply side of it, if you will? That's a good question. I think this is quite a lofty um, response, but I do think that in times like this where the future is very uncertain and it is harder and harder to see the future, I think the, the urge to write us your story or a story is, gets stronger somehow. I think that that sense of um, an ending, a forthcoming ending, makes you do the things that you want to do. And I'd wonder if that's why people are taking to the page or Substack. Like I'm interested in the rise of um, the newsletter format for creative writing. There's, there's just a flourishing 
And I wonder if it's part of that. I do think, though, over the years, the creative writing schools, so in Auckland and Wellington and, and other places around the country, Christchurch, there is now cohort after cohort of people who have trained in creative writing and I can see that work starting to come through more and more and through the publications. So, yeah, I guess the culture of writing is is growing and developing and I, there's probably lots of reasons but I do think the state of the world might be driving part of it. The Fold is brought to you by O Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa, with over 4,000 out-of-home advertising sites nationwide across both street furniture and retail centres. I'm super grateful to O Media for enabling us to make unmissable connections with Kiwis. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, Jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. To sort of flip it on into something that's a bit more... I don't think it's banal, but it's certainly a lot more um, kind of basic. But there's been a lot of trend pieces written about the rise of book talk and the, yeah. you know, the sort of semi-irony of this like ultra short form format being a place that people go to sort of gush and champion um, this activity that feels a long way from consuming uh, short form video content. But but it does seem to have had quite an extraordinary impact on certain titles and publishers and, and authors. What's your sort of perspective on you know how significant um, you know the book talk scene has been? I think it's massive. It's every week when I look at the Unity Books bestseller list that we publish on a Friday, you can see book talk trending titles in there every week, and I just I think it's incredible and. I'm in two minds about it. On the one hand, I think it's amazing that there's an online community that is that influenced that will go and buy a book. I just I think that's great. <laughs> On the other hand, I think engaging with TikTok, I'm old, you know, like I'm an ancient millennial, and I tried to get into it. I tried to get into BookTok as... Um, as a habit just to kind of try and read the trends and just see how it all worked. But I find it frittering, like the pace of it and the, yeah, just the the onslaught of it amazes It feels on me. some level antithetical to yeah. the kind of deep space you need to get into. Yeah, yeah, I find it really weird. But I think it is hugely influential and you can, you can see it, like it's very clear. Some books just go... Off, you know, Madeline Miller, whose book um, The Song of Achilles came out a decade ago, just had a huge year because of TikTok. There's there's lots and lots of of examples like that. So I think it's um, a definite thing. And I think if you can harness it, then good on you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, one, um, another sort of trend that seems to have taken off this past decade or so is a sort of a basically reconsidering or, or, or taking more seriously and building kind of fandoms and, and uh, 
you know, scenes around what were once seen as kind of less fashionable areas of the publishing world. I'm thinking of young adult, like YA is obviously a huge example, but same goes for children's and, and fantasy and sci-fi. And they're, and they're being taken a bit more seriously in circles which would mm. once have disdained them. What, what Again, what's, what's driving that, do you think? That's such an interesting question. I'm really glad you asked that. I think that... Well, I so I was a reader, you know, a really intense reader at that age, like that middle grade to YA age, and I think that if that happened to you, you have an interest in an adult in those books. So I think adults reading children's books is quite awesome and essential. And there's a writer in the UK called Catherine Rundle who published a whopper this year called Impossible Creatures. So it's a middle grade novel massive marketing campaign. I haven't seen anything like it before. I was in the UK this year and just saw it everywhere, like billboards, shoe posters, massive. And um, and the book matches the hype. Like she's a bloody good writer. All her books are beautiful, very um, kind of essential reading for that age group. But I think also essential reading for an adult who loves that genre, and they do, and she wrote an essay that's been published in book form about why adults should read children's books. And I think, um, I honestly think Catherine Rundle might be responsible for a real resurgence, like personally <laughs> responsible. <laughs> but I also think that genre, if you are someone who has had quite a time out of reading but you would like to get back to it, that's the genre you you can go to because they're, they're hooky, they're fun, there's um, real emotional depth, there's lots of real world impact, storytelling, like those books can get you back in. And I think also if you're a parent and you, you're you worried about your child reading, and I, and I hear this quite a lot, like there is, I think, a, a worrying decline in children reading, I think those are the books you go to as well um, to read together or to try and entice your kid. So I think that there is... A, um, many reasons why those books are, are on the rise. But they're also really good. Like there's so much good publishing in that in that genre. There's brilliant writers. You know, we've had um, Philip Pullman as an example for a long time, but now we've also got Karen Millwood Hargrave. We've got Catherine Rundle. There's just a lot of really brilliant storytellers in that space, and I think that they reach an adult audience as well. Switching back to to New Zealand, there you know in, in recent years there's been a a real surge in Maori writing and writers and you know you know queer poetry and and this whole intersectional space that has got a kind of, quite like a sort of a swag and an attitude about it a lot of the time in a way that like it's being kind of treated and framed and absorbed in a different way certainly seems to from the outside that than it might have been historically you know is, is that true and and again like how, how has that sort of impacted the that sort of you know the broader world of books in New Zealand I think it is true and um I'm not an expert so so this is this is from what I've learned I think but I suspect that Māori writing has always been boundary-breaking and had 
something completely different to it because it's Māori writing and but, but also to get out from under the colonial publishing system took a really long time and it's taken real ferocious sustained work by Māori writers up and down the country to, to make that happen. And I think what we're seeing now is the results of that commitment, but also people like Hui Publishers who have been over 30 years publishing Māori writers, super successful indie publishing model. I mean, it's pretty incredible what they've done. But I also think it's this, what I've learned over the past decade is that for a lot of Māori writers, I think, book publishing is not the end game at all. It's um, it's this collective shared storytelling that can take many forms. So I think if a book comes out of it, that's awesome. But there's so many other ways that Māori writing emerges. And I think we see that in um, the newsletter format. We see it in social media. There's this incredible... Um, flourishing of Instagram poetry, for example. Like I think there's what I've learned is the colonial mindset champions the book as the be-all and end-all of publishing, but in the decolonizing process that has been um, reimagined and re-understood, and I think that's awesome, and I think that's what we're seeing and then we're also seeing it when there is a book and I think like Fiti Hideaka's novel Kurongo Tuku which which won the Ockham is such an inventive publication like you can read it from the back or the front it's, it it just completely takes apart the how you read a novel and I think that we will keep seeing things like that kind of re, redefining that the book but also redefining what publishing is and and what the relationship between writing and publishing is. I also think we'll see <laughs> in the next decade a flourishing in writing in Te Dao Māori instead of right now there's a real dominance of translating English into Māori. And I think, well, I think the hope is that that will metamorphosize into writing in Te Dao Māori original stories. So this has like largely been a, a story of cool things that are working. Like, you know, if you were to sort of stand and, you know, 10 years ago and look at the world, as, be, be given a vision of the world as it is now, you'd, you'd be quite stoked with that given given the position there. But um, like all creative communities, everything, everything's all you know, can't always be going well, and we we love to have a combine. Uh, what, what's what's hard? What what, what are people struggling with um, within you know writing and books at the moment? I think that money <laughs> money is a problem. I think that the lack of funding for Creative New Zealand is a massive issue. Um, not many people get awarded grants to write a book, and that means that. It's already, you know, people who are able to write books often have really good jobs or, you know, they're able to take time off or, you know, I think it's just that equity thing. There's this, and I think that's getting worse as the cost of living gets higher and CNZ money goes down. Yeah, I think it's a huge issue. I think... um, 
Yeah, I, I think money, honestly, is probably the biggest barrier, money and time. And people have gotten around that, of course, um, for years, but I think it's harder now. I definitely can see it everywhere I look in the arts is just the cost of making something is so much more than it used to be even a decade ago. I don't, we, I don't think that we could have started Lit Crawl now. When I look back, like our rent was really low, the cost of doing everything was low, um, we could pull that off. And I think um, now it, it, it's just impossible to, unless you're already very well um, capitalised, it's pretty hard to start something up. And I think it, sometimes you can translate that that concept to writing a book. Like you need time, you need... Um, you need to have a delusional faith in yourself that you can do it <laughs> um, and that, that's hard and I think sometimes like things like grants can prop up your delusional faith. So, yeah, I wish I wish CNZ had more money. Is the, is the, well, there was just more. I just wish there was more um, opportunities to support writers to do the writing. So, you know, and CNZ seems itself very aware that, that things yeah. Aren't operating correctly. It's just uh, put out a report, New Mirrors, um, which did you contribute did, to that? Yeah. I can imagine <laughs> that you, you might have. Um, and the sort of central, well, one of the, the big ideas out of it is this idea of a arts media centre that um, in some ways parallels what the science media centre has been seen as quite successful in doing over some time. Um, what do you make of, of that as, as a sort of, it's obviously not a, a total solution, but as a sort of a salve to the uh, to the idea. I think that increasing arts cover is, of course, a brilliant thing. I I think we have seen a huge decrease in um, space for reviewing and general book cover and arts cover. I don't think we've ever cracked that high-level media for the arts. Like there's, I honestly think every single conference I've been to in the, least, in the last 10 years has done that whole what if arts got as much cover as sports question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which, I don't know, maybe we'll get there one day. I think the media sports center... <laughs> has got a lot less coverage than, than it used to as yeah, well. Like, yeah, yeah, yes. People in arts probably haven't necessarily been paying attention to. No, probably not. But I think... Yes, I think I think an increase in cover, especially investigative arts journalism, that's what I feel it could be quite revolutionary because I do think there are a lot of um, structural, there are stories involved in the structural dissemination of money. There's stories involved in the structural kind of culture of the arts at value, at kind of bureaucratic levels. So I think... Um, I think kind of telling some of those stories is really essential. My kind of cynical self, though, does often wonder who cares and why. Like I do wonder how do we make non-arts, well, people who aren't involved in the making of art every day, how, why should they care? And I, and I wonder if, I don't know if we've cracked that yet, um, and I think it's a perpetual challenge for anybody working in the arts is to kind of find that audience outside of your core audience because they're there, they're definitely there. Yeah. But it's, um, 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I was just talking about it with a friend yesterday. Like, there's bands that come to Wellington that I love that I don't even, like, they've been and gone before I've even noticed. And I wonder, like, what is that? Tell me. Because the marketing is there, but what what is it that stops you from looking? Yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's a freaking massive question. <laughs> it, it is a massive question. Yeah. And, and also, you know, the like the... The arts coverage thing kind of, you know, if you spill it out over a, you know, like the same kind of pop culture stuff that's right next to it, um, you know, I guess to, to my, my sort of cynical take on it is that tends to be come from the practitioners who want publicity for their book. They want the right kind. They just want someone to say mm. their book fucking rules. Mm. Sometimes their book's going to suck. And what, what happens then? And and when it's the same organisation that is tasked with trying to propagate both those things, you know, on one hand, it might fund a book being made and, a, and also a reviewer saying that sucks. I think that's actually awesome. That's a system yeah. working. But people are going to get mad about that and um, and it's and it's not uncomplicated. The reviewing thing I, th- I think is such an ongoing and interesting debate. I was at a um, party the other night and I was talking to another books editor. <laughs> and um, How many of those are there? There's like three maybe. But... Um, <laughs> He was pointing out a couple of people in the room and he was like, that guy gave that guy a really bad review. <laughs> and yeah. I was like, well, we're at the same party. Like, that's a great I, I find sign. It, it's, it's stressful. Like, you know, you, I quite often am in rooms with people who I've said their thing sucked and yeah. it's very hectic for a while, but you end up being yeah. like, yeah, fine. You know, at I, least I do. I personally hate the feeling of giving a bad review. I don't, or a critical review. Like, I, I do find it hard because it is my community like the people that I hugely respect but on the other hand I really respect proper critique I think it's essential well no one sets out to do the bad thing it's like it's it's heartbreaking like yeah I mean when I get notes on a feature I can kind of spend a few hours in the funk I can only imagine (laughs) what it's like if you lay yourself out there and then someone says especially because writing a book is a Freaking heroic thing to do, you know, to And so personal it. at times, so you know. Oh, but there is, you know, as my partner Andy always says, he's so good about this. He's like, it doesn't matter if they like it. It doesn't matter if they don't like it. That's the rule with art. You yeah. just go keep doing it. You do. You do. <laughs> um, lastly, you know, we're, we're just over a year since you, uh, speaking of heroic acts, took up the, the mantle of um, being the third uh, editor of the spin-off books coverage. Um, how's it going? Well, I'm, I love it. I'm very grateful <laughs> for the job. Honestly, I think it's a super privileged job. I was very nervous starting because I'd never worked in the media. Um, and I didn't. I realised I was completely at sea with the industry. Like I was so comfortable in my book world. But the media world felt to me like a completely different kettle of fish, which it is. So I um, I feel like I've learned a lot over the year, which feels really good. I have, I've really enjoyed um, understanding a new context and meeting other people in the industry who are so interesting and so um, clear and curious about the media. Um and I love being able to support the industry. Like I feel that it's such an essential part of the spin-off and part of the book sector. 
I always wish I could do more though. Like I'm always like, oh man, I wish I had more budget as everybody does. You know, it's the same, it's the same old thing. Like there's never enough. There's no. never enough um, time, money, people <laughs> to, to cover what is out there. But I think it's an exciting, I think it's a really exciting gig. And I, now that I've done one year, I can feel slightly more comfortable <laughs> in the media and can kind of start to see how things could shape in the future, which which is also interesting. I mean, from from my perspective, you're, you're doing the most extraordinary job and uh yeah, like it's 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 amazing to watch and to read. Uh, I do actually have one last question. I lied before. Um, given the the timing of this and the the fact that a lot of people, when they think about their summer, they think about finally reading um, in a more sustained way than they can during their their working year. Do you want to like pick two or three books that that um, people might miss, but you think mm. they should really give some consideration to? I might cry saying this, but we just lost um, Renee. Amazing you wrote the most writer. gorgeous piece. Like, if you're listening, please go and read Claire's. Uh, I don't know if it's an obituary, but it's a tribute to her anyway. Yeah, she was just an extraordinary woman and a brilliant writer. And her um, memoir, These Two Hands by Makaro Press, is an awesome read. And she's very funny and she's very um, bold. And her life story is just. An inspiration. It's so the sweep that. of it, right? Yeah, she's just she just embodies that whole you're never too old to keep going. Like she just didn't she was very forward looking and very um she gave herself a lot of respect and I think that's an amazing lesson for everybody. Yeah, so let's just one. go with that. I mean, <laughs> okay. that that's um, that's a pretty strong wreck, and I'm going to do it. And, uh, yeah. Hey, Claire, thanks so much. This has been really fun. Thank and, you. Um, that was fun. Love your coverage. Honestly, it's amazing. <laughs> That was The Fold, brought to you by our partners at O Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa. Huge thanks to O Media for sponsoring this episode of The Fold and enabling us to make unmissable connections with Kiwis. Kia ora e te iwi, Te Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a spin-off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.